vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching, proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. You're listening to the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about various diagnoses that your students may have. This month on the show and on the blog, we are talking about neurodiversity in our studios. So if you're not familiar with that term, I know a lot of these different things can be confusing. So let's start by explaining what we mean by neurodiversity. This is, a, I guess, a slightly newer term that has come to be segmented off from what you might call special needs or learning differences. So neurodiverse students are those that have different ways that their brain works, is how I would say it in simple language. We're talking about autism, we're also talking about ADHD, we're talking about dyslexia and various other things like that that your student may be diagnosed with, or your student may have tendencies towards even without the formal diagnosis. On today's show, it's the first in this theme, and we thought we'd just unpack a few of these most common terms, what they mean generally, so you can get an idea, and what they mean for us as piano teachers. Now, I am not an expert in any of these things. I don't claim to be, and Joanna, who wrote the corresponding article, is not either. What we are is curious, and we do our research, but we may say some things that are not perfect or not always exactly what the expert would say. What we try to do is come at it from a music teacher's perspective and therefore make it digestible to you as a music teacher. The power in doing that, even if we don't always have the perfect understanding of all of the different criteria for diagnosing someone with, say, autism, is that we can make it that music is hopefully more accessible to more students. And that's really, I mean, I was going to say the theme behind the the idea behind this theme month, but really that's the idea behind everything I do, believe it or not. (laughs) I think that music should be accessible to all. And that includes, yes, neurodiversity, but it also includes informing parents who don't have a musical background so that we can spread music outside of the normal sphere. It includes teaching with games and teaching with pop music and different types of genres because that's what makes music more inclusive as a whole. So when I talk about inclusivity, I'm talking about everything. However, right now we're talking about the normal, I guess, way of talking about inclusivity, which tends to be around students with specific diagnoses, with neurodiversity, with special needs, with learning differences. All right, so with that caveat out of the way, or I guess preamble out of the way, we are going to go into the various different, most common diagnoses that you may come across in your studio. Bear in mind as well as we go through these that I'm just talking about the nuances today of what these things mean. And then next week is going to be all about a teaching toolkit and how you can use it to inform how you teach based on things you know about your student, whether that's a diagnosis like this or whether it's something else. We'll talk more about that next week. The first diagnosis that we tend to get asked about, probably the most, is autism. 
or ASD, which stands for Autism Spectrum Disorder. To give you a general idea of autism, I know it's in the zeitgeist really um, at this stage, but if you're not sure what this really means, it basically means that people with autism tend to enjoy, tend to get a lot of satisfaction from deep conversations focused on a specific subject. Many people with autism will tend to have one or a few specific subjects that they are really, really engaged in and they tend to have kind of blinkers for other subjects. They can often also have high sensitivity to touch, to sound. That's why you see in some shows even, if you see someone with autism, they might have noise cancelling headphones on even without sound in them and it's to reduce the sound of the environment. So that's about the high sensitivity. They may also enjoy repetition of things more than similar kids at the same age. They often enjoy routine, order and predictability. What they can find difficult because of the way their brains are set up is interacting and relating to their peers and to you as their piano teacher in this case, but to anyone. And I would add that as a general, very general rule or not even a rule but a general guideline to expect this a little bit more from male students with autism and a little bit less from female. Now that of course can vary but from what I know from the various research I've done just being aware of what people usually associate with autism which is this poor social skills kind of thing or not being able to relate to other people. It can be more true for some for some kids, for some adults with autism than others. And it's generally a little bit more true for males. We don't want to paint anyone with a broad brush, but just keep that in mind that there is huge variability there. Students with autism might also feel overwhelmed by certain sounds or smells or tastes or touch. So we talked about sounds before in the noise cancelling headphones, but also smells of things can really, they just stick out more. It's like they're screaming at them, where to you it's just like a whiff and you can let go of that idea. Or tastes might just jar with them more. That's not going to come up as much for us unless you use candy in your studio or touch, so specific sensations, they might need a bit more time to get used to those, or they might be bothered by certain things like certain types of clothing, certain feelings under their fingertips. They can also find it more difficult to adapt to changes. That could be changes to the environment, to the schedule, to the structure of things, anything like that. So the challenges in piano lessons when you have a student with autism can be reading, but I would say through the students that I've had, which yes, have been on the milder end of the spectrum generally, but I have found that reading is actually fine for the students that I've had. This is entirely individual. You might keep in mind that it might be more of a struggle, but I wouldn't go into this thinking that you need to dumb down the reading in any way. Definitely act as if it's going to be fine just have a backup plan in terms of the reading. For structure and spontaneity, this is where I really would advise starting a certain way and continuing that way until you know your student better. What I mean here is the lesson structure. 
If you have a student who's coming to you who's on the autism spectrum, I would suggest having a clear lesson structure that you stick to every week and letting them in on it. Now, the first few weeks, you might be experimenting a little bit to see what you even want to do in your lessons with them, and that's fine. But I would say as soon as possible, you come up with a loose framework, inform your student of that structure and let them in on it. And if they're on the younger side, use pictures and things to indicate what structure you're going to do. For instance, it's improv first, and then we work on reading pieces, and then we work on this, and then we work on that. Just be a bit more explicit than you normally would be so that they can track where they are in the lesson. You should also keep in mind that improvisation and composition might be more challenging for this student. Now, I don't think that means we should avoid it. I actually think it means you should do improv consistently from the very start. Where I've seen this be a real problem for students is where they haven't done a lot of improv and then they're expected to do it. A lot of the time I find my students have wanted to come up with what they're going to play before they play it. Like they just can't get into the idea of playing on the spot and seeing what happens. Whereas if I start with that from the beginning in a really gentle way with clear guide rails, so giving them very specific things that they can play, that they just have a couple of options and then gradually expanding from there. I think that makes improv very accessible to students with autism and I think it can be very beneficial. Where I would be more cautious is with composing. Now we do a composing project every year in my studio and everyone does that. But if I have a student on the autism spectrum, I do keep in mind that that's going to take them longer. And so I try to start it a bit earlier or have a bit of buffer time for that because the decision making aspect can be really, really challenging. I think it's still beneficial, but you're going to want to limit those decisions that they have to make to create their composition. So it's really enjoyable for them and not just pure overwhelm. And you're going to want to have enough time so that you are not sitting there feeling really stressed. And therefore that stress carries over to them and they just think this is the most frustrating, horrible thing you can do in piano is compose a piece, right? That's a brief overview of ASD or autism. And we will go into some more tools that can help all of your students, neurodiverse and neurotypical, next week. But for now, let's move on to ADHD. During my time as a teacher, there was actually, there used to be, and this could be just an Irish thing, these things do vary, but there used to be a separate diagnosis, which was ADD, meaning attention deficit disorder, without the hyperactivity component. And I had a student who had ADD before and I have had students with ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I don't know, you know, anything about how these things get removed or added or what the logic is. And I'm sure they know what they're doing. However, I did. It did make a lot of sense to me when I had that student who had ADD meaning no hyperactivity component. And it helped me in a way understand this disorder or this diagnosis much better than I had just, you know, from generally hearing about it around the place. So I think we often think of ADHD as being kind of jumpy all over the place or like bouncing off the walls. And it often isn't that at all. Now it can manifest in that way, but what ADHD really is, is a struggle with focus discipline or intended focus on things and sticking to that intention. It also can mean often a hyper focus on certain 
tasks. I think it's misunderstood. I think we're getting a better understanding of it now that the diagnosis is more common and actually a lot more common than it used to be in adults getting diagnosed with this after the fact, as it were. Like, I have two friends who now have a diagnosis of ADHD and they just got that in recent years, right? (laughs) They didn't have it as a child, as in they didn't have the diagnosis. But now looking back, I knew them as teenagers and I'm like, oh yeah, it probably would have been helpful for their teachers to know that at the time, you know, diagnosis or not labeling or not is a whole other discussion. But just to say that I think it's growing in how much people are understanding it, but sometimes it's still misunderstood. So it is a bit of this inability to stick to schedules or intended tasks because you get focused on another thing or because it's kind of yeah as we often understand it the brain is kind of dancing around and can't focus on anything but it can also manifest in this hyper-focused way so you may find that your students with ADHD they in their piano lessons they may have trouble focusing sometimes and other times they can get so focused on one task and you want to move on to the next one because you're trying to keep the lesson pace moving along. But they can't let go of that last task. Task switching can be really, really challenging. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't switch tasks, but you do need to kind of come up with little ways to ease that transition. And I would definitely talk to their parents about that. Sometimes it can be hard to keep these students' attention. In Joanna's article, she mentioned that for a lot of girls, it tends to be more of a daydreaming is how it shows up. And for a lot of boys, it can be that hyperactivity component. But the student I had who had ADD, no hyperactivity, when that was a diagnosis, that was a boy. (laughs) You know, gender can give you some vague indication, but really doesn't tell you anything. So he would have very much been the daydreamer. He wouldn't be bouncing off the walls at all. He wasn't overactive. He would get hyper-focused on certain things. But then other times you're trying to give a direction and he's not trying to be rude, but something has just caught his attention or something's going on in his brain. And so he's just staring at the ceiling, you know? That's what we're looking at, but we know there's a lot more going on inside his head. In cases like that, just giving clear, simple directions is really important, as is just trying to bring them back to you so as simple as just repeating their name without sounding frustrated, just saying, Bill, 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 at a nice even pace, without yelling, without getting annoyed, just knowing that they will come back to you when they can, when they have the ability to do that. And I found the name is the simplest way to do that. It doesn't sound accusatory. It doesn't sound like a reprimand in any way. It's just trying to get back their attention. So once you get Bill back, then you can give that clear, simple direction. The other area that students with ADHD might find challenging is tracking the music. This varies a lot, but I have seen it come up this way, where because they have trouble just focusing in one direction, tracking the music left to right can be a little bit challenging. I find this to be easy to solve if you're just patient and spend a lot of time pointing so pointing with a pencil from above so that they can track where they are in the music at all time and that if they do get distracted by something they can find their spot again without getting frustrated and then eventually they'll be able to wean off that the final diagnosis we're going to talk about today and of course there are so many others but we chose three that are the most common that come up a lot in lessons and that 
present certain challenges for us as teachers. So the final one for today is dyslexia. Dyslexia is probably in a way the most well known because it's been diagnosed with some regularity for a while. It is a trouble with decoding language, speech, written words or patterns. So there are actually many different types of dyslexia that we won't go into and I don't have the expertise to explain each one, but I just know them from people I know in my life who have different forms of dyslexia and some have a more rare version of it, which is harder to diagnose. So just be aware of that, especially as you have students who have more trouble than you would expect, especially with reading music. They don't have any diagnosis and they don't seem to have trouble in school with reading. Just keep in mind that there may be something like this going on. There might not. People vary. There's all sorts of spectrums going on. But there are some forms of dyslexia that are very hard to diagnose. Again, going back to my friends, but I have a friend who only in his early 20s was diagnosed with a, a type of dyslexia in college. And it's because basically it means that he cannot read in his head so he can read out loud no it's not that he can't read in his head. he can read out loud he can read in his head okay but he can't digest the words at the same time as reading them does that make sense that's my understanding of it from his explanation of what how it feels to him but that wasn't diagnosed for a long time because Obviously, it appears that he's reading fine. He can read aloud to you. He can do everything. But it's very hard for him to simultaneously digest that information. Now he makes a lot more use of audio materials because then he can listen and then he can understand at the same time. And it's a simple tweak, but it's made a big difference for him. With dyslexia, the more common versions would be those reading versions. And a lot of Students with dyslexia will describe it as things getting scrambled, like the letters are getting muddled and they can't sort of organise themselves on the page. Before we get into some of the lesson challenges, I want to just put in a caveat because, again, like with autism, I have had many students with dyslexia who have no trouble reading music whatsoever. And I'm not saying your student definitely won't. It is an added factor and it may cause music reading to be more difficult. But don't go into your lessons with them assuming that they can't read music because then they're going to assume it too. Even if you don't say it outright, it's going to be implied. Kids are smart. They'll pick up on it. If you go into it just testing the waters, trying different things, you know, trying your finger number, pre-reading pieces, seeing how they're tracking, they may not have any of the same struggles that they have with regular reading. They might, but they might not. So keep that in mind. Many of my students with dyslexia also have a great oral memory. I don't know if this is inherently part of the dyslexia component or if it's that students with dyslexia, they had trouble reading in school. And so they got better at remembering what they heard because that's how they could pick up information. And kids are so designed to learn that they do develop these different ways of working through things. So a lot of my students with dyslexia have been very highly oral learners. They learn through listening really well and they remember things they hear much better. Students who have no trouble with reading at the same age, right? That's dyslexia. Again, it's maybe the most common or best understood by a lot of people to a certain degree. It's a bit more straightforward in how it's going to affect your lessons. But there are some challenges 
that I believe students with many, many different diagnoses will come across. So I wanted to go through those as well. The first one is fine motor skills. My understanding or my guesstimation, I'd, someone could tell me if I'm right about this or not, but this is, this is how I've come to understand it. I imagine that if you have, say, ADHD, you are in general going to prefer moving about, doing, you know, moving big blocks and things like that and playing physical games when you're young versus sitting there and colouring in a page very carefully. And if you don't sit there and colour in a page very carefully, you don't develop that fine motor skill as early. Of course, when you get to school, you're forced to do more of these fine motor skills, but I think you still end up a little bit behind where you would have been if you had done colouring and more quiet, small-scale activities. That's just my way of understanding this situation, but I do find that many students with dyslexia, with ASD, with ADHD and various other things do have trouble with fine motor skills. Now one diagnosis we haven't talked about today is dyspraxia and that is specifically <laughs> to do with coordination so that's very overtly going to be going to have that challenge but often students with any other challenge will often also have trouble with fine motor which affects us in piano and may not have come up so much in school because it's just not as needed. You know, you don't really get marks for colouring inside the lines correctly as much as we feel like we kind of do, maybe. You don't. It might not be flagged in school that they don't have the same level of fine motor coordination that their peers do, but they often don't. The other huge one that many of these students will face is confidence and self-belief. I believe this just comes from being in an environment that was not designed for them all day. So if they've been in school for several years before they get to you, they have learned that education equals somewhere that they don't really fit and that yes, hopefully they're given support to help them fit better, but they still are not designed for that environment. It is not really meant for them. So if you're in that environment five days a week, 40 weeks of a year or whatever, for several years, you start to learn that you're not very good at stuff. And that's obviously not true. It's not universally true that if you are on the autism spectrum, you're not good. Like, that's clearly wrong. And if you ask them, I'm sure they would tell you, in many cases, they've been taught that they are not bad at stuff. However, there is this ingrained thing that maybe they're not as good. So this can lead to an unwillingness to try new things if they look hard because they're just so used to feeling like they fail and they want to avoid that. It can lead to believing they can't do it and therefore being less motivated. And it can also lead to a lot of increased frustration because they think someone else would get it faster or because they are genuinely not getting it as fast as someone else might. I think it can be both. So you do want to be very careful with your pacing with many students not with the level uh, that they can get to. I'm never saying hold them back or assume that they're not going to go as far as another student. But you just want to be on extra alert for frustrations 
and how fast you're moving and how much you're giving them at one time so that they never feel like they're going to fall flat on their face even more than with other students. Some students you can push a little bit more and let them do things more independently maybe. And I'm not saying you're not working to build independence with these students, but you do want to be aware of the fact that you're dealing with this underlying underconfidence or limiting self-beliefs for many of them. Your one thing this week is to consider saying yes to the next neurodiverse student who comes your way. I know it can be scary, but I believe we all need to do our part in making music more accessible to more students. If you already have one right now, a neurodiverse student with whatever diagnosis, look up more info on what their diagnosis actually means and let it inform different approaches you try in your lessons. So that's our quick rundown of some of the challenges you might face with the most common diagnoses that we come across in our studios. Next week, we're going to talk about student first or person first language and how that can translate into a teaching toolkit that you can really use in your studio. I'll see you then. Vibrant Music Teaching members get five new games or resources at least every single month that keep them inspired and worthy to become a better teacher each and every day. If you want to join the best community of teachers online, you can go to vmt.ninja and sign up today.